Welcome to this new season of Liftoff Journeys. I can't believe it's 2024. We are bringing you some of the most incredibly inspirational conversations with some of the world's most talented and amazing people. Tune in to Liftoff Journeys to hear their stories, what inspired them to become who they are today, what challenges they face today, and more importantly, where they're looking towards for tomorrow. You're gonna love my very first interview. It is with author and historian Gareth Russell. He wrote a book most recently called The Palace. He was on Lift Up with Jeannie Walden on my TV show. And I was so blown away with my conversation with him on the show, I invited him to the podcast. So without further ado, let's get started. Gareth, I cannot believe that you agreed to come on my podcast after being on the TV show. I'm so honored. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank oh, you. So you don't need to thank me. This is so, I'm so pleased to do this, Jeannie. I'm really excited. We had such a fun conversation for the TV show that I really wanted to have you on this podcast. But I have to warn you, this podcast is different because we're not going to have interview questions. We are going to talk about your amazing book that I keep with me at all times. Um, but more importantly, I think everyone who listens to the podcast wants to know, how did you get to where you were today and why? Why do you do what you do today? So let's start at the very, very beginning of your of your life. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> let's, let's talk about um, when you were little, did you always want to grow up and were you obsessed with history? Did you always want to be an author? Tell us, like, what did you think you wanted to be when you were little? Yeah, I mean, I... <laughs> I think I, I told my mom when I was seven that I wanted to be the czar of Russia. And she was like, that is unfeasible. Um, We're going to need a backup. Um, and she was she was correct. But I, yeah, I did love history. So I went to, I was born in Belfast in Northern Ireland. We lived in, in a village outside Belfast. And I went to Sunday school and I loved the Bible stories. Loved it. Uh, and, and particularly the Old Testament. I could love anything with Babylon or Egypt, the more historical the better. And I also, because I grew up in Belfast, I was very lucky that my great-grandparents were still alive when I was a child. And two of them had seen the Titanic when it was being built there. So you grew up with a you know huge amount of stories of Edwardian Belfast. And, and what was interesting about them was Thomas came, my great-grandfather came from a background where it was very working class, so he was illiterate until the day he died because he he went to a Presbyterian school. All the churches were the schools were religiously run then, but the family were so poor that he would just go in to sign his name and then skip out to find work with the coal workers in Belfast to, to bring some home some more money. And his father worked in the shipyard where they built the Titanic. And um, so he really grew up in the shadow of these great ships, whereas my his future wife, Elizabeth, came from a much wealthier background. And her versions of what she saw of the Titanic were this pristine ship sailing up Belfast Lock, and people had lovely parties to go and watch it. And looking back on it, it was the first time I realized that you can see the same thing, but you experience something very different depending on what your point of view is. So I suppose I grew up just obsessed with history. And the third part, the Bible, Belfast, and the third part was Burton. So my my father was a huge Richard Burton fan, and we were on holiday in the south of Ireland. 
and that it just did not stop raining for about three days. And they were doing reruns of old movies, including Anne of the Thousand Days about Anne Boleyn. And my dad watched it because he loved Richard Burton. And apparently I just gazed in rapt wonder at this Tudor costume and show. And so that was the, that was it coming together. And I used to write as a child these truly dreadful plays that I would subject my family to watching. So it was always a compulsion. And yeah, I think on some level I knew I, I wanted to. And then as I got a bit older, I suppose part of it was the less glamorous, more evolutionary aspect, which is that I I I all writing was where I felt completely calm. And, and, and productive and useful. And actually, everyday life that seemed to be a little bit easier for other people, I always thought was a bit tricky. So writing was um, a refuge, a plan, and a necessity. It was sort of in three strands, I think. Wow, I love that. I don't really have that many people that come on the podcast that grew up and had this whole stream that went through that kind of inspired them to be who they are today. And I think that's so interesting. I know, you know, when I was younger, I also wanted to move to Russia, but I wanted to move to the old czar led Russian times so that I could do magic like Merlin, because, you know, I, oh. I wanted to be an alchemist. Like that's, that's what I wanted. Oh, you wanted to, to go to like, Moscow. I didn't want to kill the czar. Yeah, yeah, yes. you wanted to go to like Moscow. Yes. Got it. Yeah, I wanted to go do a ball at the window. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but I will tell you, my my oldest daughter, when she was little and you would ask her what she wanted to be, she would tell you she wanted to be a bubble bather. Oh. And yes. you wonder, what is a bubble bather? And when you'd ask her, she'd say, I'm just going to bathe people, whoever pays me the most money. It doesn't matter. So that was a little scary <laughs> as a parent. I wonder what she was going to grow up in. There are some things to nip in there, sure. But it is important. Yeah. Yeah. And she looks, she's an economic model there, and that is what matters. There you go. Yes, yes. Right. She was she was very business focused. So, you know, that's that that comes with working with sure. living with a workaholic mom. But sure. but so <laughs> so <laughs> you've got you know, you you have this history has just surrounded you. And yep. then you get to the point where you've you've just become this historian and, and you've right. created this incredible book, which we talked about on the show, and it's got just so many stories about hauntings and challenges and and opportunities and everything that's happening with the royal family do you feel like your focus today is still steeped in historical recaps and aspects of life or do you feel that you're trying to now you know move towards more modern day and potentially even we'll start looking at how history can predict the future oh 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 great question um I'm incredibly, yeah, great question. I'm incredibly greedy. So I like to move between different things. So sometimes it'll be a 16th century book and then the next time it'll be a more modern one. And actually the palace really was the first time that they all they all came together. I'm a great believer that history can, can predict with a small p the future. Uh, there's a fantastic play. It's just finished this week in London called Backstairs Billy, and it's about the late Queen Mother. She's played by Penelope Wilton, who many people recognise from Downton Abbey. And Luke Evans plays her gay butler, Billy. 
And in it, it's set in 1979, and the Queen Mother character says, you know, every generation thinks they're seeing something new in history, and all it is is that they're seeing it for the first time. And that a lot of the stuff I think that people really panic about, they think this is the worst it's ever been. You think it's not. Trust me, this this cycle, this too shall pass. Um yeah, I mean, history, there's a, I'm going to butcher this quote, but it's something like history, I love history, like I love a warm bed or a cup of tea. There's something, it's hor- It's horrifying, but it also is, it, it is a comfort to go into these documents and into these stories of the past. So I can't ever really imagine my life without it. Although I say that my first two books were not historical, they were young adult novels set in Belfast, and they... um. But I was, but they were sort of based kind of like on schools that my sisters and I had gone to. But that was almost tactical. I thought, like, you've got to get this done now when you're young and you can still remember, you know, what it's like to be to be in these schools. Um, but even then, I was still reading history and doing little articles on the side. So, yeah, history is sort of the, the, the companion through my life, I think. I love it. I, I think we have so much that we can reflect on. I love that quote that it's it it's not new. It's the first time that people have seen it yeah. because you think about it and it's amazing. But it also makes me think about my grandmother who lived to be 103 years old. And I still remember when we bought her a microwave and I was little and it was Christmas and we wanted to buy her a microwave and, you know, Back then, when microwaves first came out, they did demos in the store with eggs and potatoes. And with the egg, it would show you how you could mix up an egg and put it in a microwave and it become a scrambled egg in 35 seconds, or how the potato cooks from the inside out instead of the outside in, so you never have to leave it in the oven for hours. And it was like magical, magical. Right. Right. But my grandmother wouldn't allow the microwave in the house. So we're all excited to get her this microwave right. to save her time. Yeah. But she is not, She's she, she hadn't been used to it and she starts telling me these stories from when she was younger in Czechoslovakia and just when I realized what she the world she grew up in where she had absolutely no technology and no automation how strange it must be for her to bring a box into her house that's going to cook her food for her and it really gets you thinking about how how historical times can really Set your mindset for appreciation for what's happening today. And there's this crazy new, well, it's not new. It's in season three. There's this TV show, it's called, or this TV series called C-S-E-E with Jason Momoa in it. I don't know if you've heard of it. But the premise is something like COVID goes across the world and it makes everybody blind. And it's years later, but the entire world can't see. Oh, wow. Something took out everybody's eyesight. And so now everyone has to live and they're living without being able to see. But these witches are born, a few people that have sight. And it talks about their um, their struggles being able to see versus growing up without that sense and being able to hear and smell and feel and just be so much more adept. And it's a weird, dark show with a lot of blood and gore. But it's also fascinating because it just makes oh, you think about the world in different ways. It's very, very cool. And I feel like what you do inspires us to think about the world in different ways. And I don't know, like my question for you was, did you realize that you would be inspiring many people to think about things so deeply when you, when you write? No, not at all. (laughs) I think sometimes, I mean, for sure. I think there were some 
No, no. There, the, I think that there there have been, as you write the book, you sort of go on a journey with the past and the documents yourself. And I can remember, I think four years ago, I did a book on the Titanic, and I remember thinking, like, actually, there's really not much that has changed. And that book's probably more relevant now with with AI and this like rapidly developing technology that we're just not listening to the warnings about. And we're still going full steam ahead. I'm like, oh, we've learned learned nothing. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, but no, I, I mean that's really kind of you to say. I think I've been really, I'm always touched, and I think part of the reason why I'm really touched that people respond to the books in the way they have is that it wasn't the easiest path to get to where I am today, and so. You know, not that I would want to go back to to, to the the more difficult years, but they were good to have because you remember to take every reader seriously and to to be really grateful for people's time and money, both of which, you know, people work hard for and should protect. And so when they invest it in something you've done, I take, you know, I take that as, as very flattering regardless. So, yeah, that's very kind of you to say. Yeah, well, I think, you know, when you're in a position like you're in where you're such a well-known and acclaimed author, I mean, people are looking to you. They're looking to you for advice about how to become like you and, you know, what can they learn from your books and what can you teach them and how can you inspire them? How does that make you feel? I mean, you must, do you feel like you now have a responsibility to do something even better as your next project? Do you not care and you're just following your passion? Like, where are you in that whole scheme of things? Oh, that's interesting. Yes. I think so. When people ask me for career advice, I do sometimes get a slight tightness in the chest, not because I'm not flattered, but I'm almost slightly overwhelmed because I think, and you can speak to this. It's not, it is a career that is, that requires a huge amount of sweat before you see the result. And sometimes there's a quote from um, the actress Amelia Clark. She played Daenerys Targaryen in Game of Thrones. And someone apparently asked her, you know, what's your advice in getting into acting? And she says, if there's anything else you can do, do it. If there's anything else that you can do that will bring you joy do it. If this is the thing that will bring you joy, do it. Because it's tough. It is tough. And it's very inconsistent and insecure at the start. But I try and I say, look, it'll feel like you're throwing darts in the dark for a while. That is what it is. You just have to keep throwing um, at the start of your career. In terms of the books, that's a fabulous question. Because I think it's both following your passions, because that is what made you you as a writer. But also, I've you know, been encouraged by other authors that I've spoken with to, and just in, as I evolve as a person, we all get a bit wiser in our business as we go through it to remember that this is a business as well. And what I mean by that is I sit with about five or six ideas for a new book. And the, the criteria for those six are, I have to love them. I would read any of these six books and I'm okay spending the next two years living in Stockholm syndrome with this topic. That's what I'm okay with. Then whittling it down to the one that gets picked, I have to think what other people will love. So I'm going to love all six of these, but some of them are not going to be ones that appeal to a lot of to a lot of readers. And so you have to be conscious. I think that it is you. The gift is your career to yourself. It is such a privilege to do what I dreamed of being able to do full time when I was younger. 
but your priority is your reader and your obligation is your reader. So write a book that you want to write, but pick one that you know people will want to read or hope people will want to read. And that's kind of the trade-off. So six I would love and then whittle it down to one that I think other people will. That's fascinating. Now, you must get a lot of suggestions and recommendations from fans and readers and critics, right? Yeah. Well, when I was doing the, the young adult book set in Belfast, that was when it was probably at its peak, where when pe- particularly in Belfast, people would say, I've got a story for you. I'm like, don't. <laughs> like, the, book, the books are 250 <laughs> pages long. Um, but then some of the stories were so funny and okay, they couldn't work on the book, but it was it was really nice that people wanted to tell you their stories yeah there are times where people will give you ideas for a book and it's very flattering but it's sometimes a book that's been done um or other times it's a great idea and that's actually how the the palace the hampton court book came about was my agent that suggested it we were kind of going around and i had five ideas for the next one and i'd shown her hampton court and she said what about it and that's when i sat and thought actually this could be something brilliant so you do yeah, you listen to the you listen to the suggestions. Sometimes they are insane. Sometimes you will get things and you're like, no, no one would read this book. Not even maybe you. You've suggested it. Um, but yeah, it's 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 fascinating. And and sometimes you get absolute nuggets out of it. And even if you don't, you've got to have a good conversation with someone. Yeah. Now, now you mentioned AI. So I, I have to ask you about AI. Everyone's talking about AI. Everyone's talking about AI in every single different way possible. The conversation I'm having with the TV show is the fact that there's this realization that broadcast media was never built for the internet because it was built before the internet. And wow. the internet, when it was designed, did not consider contained broadcast media. And there's this been there's this challenge across all the broadcasting networks on wow. how do we marry the two together and still come out with something that's equitable. And you know, there's this interesting advancements in AI that can kind of build the bridge there. So there's good parts of AI. There's all the bad parts that we're seeing I just watched a scary YouTube video yesterday about all the regulation. And I think it said that Google has 2,000 people working on AI analysis and security right now to just evaluate the content and identify what disclaimers are they going to have to be and 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 how does that work? How do you think AI is going to impact the publishing industry? It's hard to say. I, I, I There will be good that comes from it unquestionably. I have to say I'm quite soothed that google have two thousand people on that um i'm probably one of the only people in the world who says we should raise politicians salaries i think they should go up like five six seven times if we can and the reason being there is i don't see politicians really in britain or america who i consider to be technologically savvy i don't see it and i think if you are someone with a technological brain you go to the private sector because they can pay you um, and they can pay you so much more than the public sector will. And I know people will laugh and guffaw at that, but sometimes you have to hold your nose and be realistic. And I am genuinely extremely concerned that there are not enough people in government who seem to understand what this stuff is. And not just, I mean, like to suggest, I mean, you saw the Zuckerberg um, questioning by the politicians. Yeah. They didn't know what Facebook was. And, you know, how would I, and it was questions that, no one under 30 would like, or even under, to be honest, under 45 would have thought those were reasonable questions. So if you have a, a governmental core 
that struggles to understand how a Facebook profile works? How on earth can they introduce the legislation that is really needed? And I go back, sort of to circle back to your question, Jeannie, about the Titan- about the, the inspiration of history. One of the really big problems with the Titanic and that generation was there was no one in government who fully understood how big these ships were getting and how and how there was standard protocol being done in the ocean liner industry that when it was announced at the inquiries, people couldn't believe that the only thing that the ships had gotten so big and there was such confidence in these super ships that they were only told to slow down for fog. Anything else, just speed up and you'll be fine. Uh, which is mind blowing when you when you hear it, but there was no one in government at the time who understood that you needed laws that did not just deal in tonnage but passenger capacity and all these things. The internet was the same; there were not enough laws. It was the wild west for a time, and it lacerated many many lives, and it still does. There is, you know, it is a hinterland of speculation. And I think AI has the potential to be that times a hundred, really, because it, they're just, to me, to me, they're, they're, the historical example of this is not great. And if you look back to what happened to societies when massive amounts of industrial change came in that took away jobs, the impact fell on the poorest first. And it felt, you know, you look at the birth of the Industrial Revolution. And the hundreds of thousands of people who were put out of work. And I don't see any slowing down of this. You bear in mind also, my, my this is an interesting one. You talk about publishing. I don't know how it will impact it. But when the AI debate was happening in its infancy, what we were told was, this is going to remove the need for menial labor. And it's going to free people up to pursue their artistic passions. The first thing it has done is go after the arts. I mean, the AI-generated art is essentially the world's greatest plagiarist software. Um, And so you have, it it already isn't doing what we were told it was. And I, (laughs) this is not as a historian, this is just as a human. When you have Elon Musk and the Pope both coming out to say there are concerns about this, (laughs) listen, like, take a breath, take a breath. So I, I think there could be you know, certainly, you know, we lost our father last year and he had he dealt with dementia and Parkinson's. And if there was something that AI could contribute, as I think it probably could, to the battle against, you know, lacerating, devastating illnesses like dementia, wonderful. And you can't stop the march of technology. But when you have, like, I've talked to people who I know who are not alarmist, who will say, we have no idea what this is going to do. How is there not, you know, it's great to hear Google are, are taking sort of control of this with, with, with those 2,000 um, employees, but it does feel like this is a train that's speeding up and leaving the station and a lot of people don't want to be on board. You know, that's my that's oh, my for sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it is it is like Terminator movie and it, it, it does seem to be like Skynet. It's taking on a life of its own. And, yeah, and it, even I, to what Google and YouTube are doing, you know, they're, they're making you identify that your content was AI generated. That's a small step and, and that's, that's not the, anything. And also, by the way, yeah. that is, that is so to it, their, that's to their credit, Jeannie, because they, it's in their interest actually not to do that. Um, 
Right. What what I would say, just from having, I'm fascinated by the history of religion. You will see in about 20 years, this is my, this is is going to be like a wing nut. You're going to see within about 20 years, I would say a massive spike in the number of people who are affiliating with religious groups that are Luddite, i.e. anti-technology. And you will see a surge in denominations that interpret AI to be antichrist-like the, the anti this will kind of feed you know a lot of this stuff um i think will feed into will make a lot of people consider it to be what was foretold but i think you will see a spike in religious groups that really push back against this and i do think there will be luddite anti-technology groups both religious and secular that spring up because this is going to be society shakingly huge that's my that's my impulse at my yeah. instinct you know, you you have to go watch this series C, and you have to make it to the beginning of season two, and then I think you're gonna be just like it's gonna okay. just make you so introspective about everything that you're saying because the way they deal with sight and wh- how sight impacts the world and and the powers yeah. that it has, it's just the whole thing's fascinating. So I think you've touched. But this was amazing. Look, you took the initial conversation about you growing up and be fascinated with history. And we took that full 360 around all the way to AI and back to history again, just like that. And just like always, we could stay on the phone forever and talk. <laughs> well, look, do you want that, that, that to, to quote a fictional queen mother in the play? We're, we're, this is AI is unusual, but we've seen it before. Where we just think it's something new. Society has changed before, so hopefully, I, I in my darker moments, I always try to remind myself. You know, this is the human race is the only one we have, and let's hope we we look after ourselves. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's not something that that uh, needs to go away. Well, no. Gareth, thank you so much for being on Liftoff Journeys. You. This was an incredible discussion, and I hope you have a wonderful day. I know all of our listeners are just going to be. The, I can see people's heads spinning already, and then just going to, to learn more and find more. So you've inspired a whole group of people today. Thank you. Uh, listen, thank you so so much for having me, and thank you to everyone who's listening. All right, everybody. If you didn't read the palace yet, I'm going to give a plug. Go get the palace. All right. Thank you.